Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. It's your girl, Sonia McQueen, with your mind, your body, your choice. All right, so I have this guest today. This is my friend, my brother from another mother, um, my ex-manager who I'm begging to be my manager again, Mr. Glendale Whitney. Hello, Glenn. Hey, love, how you doing? I'm good, and you guys just, I want to let you know, he's in the mountains some damn where um, with terrible service. So if we lose Glenn, I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll just try again. All right, Glenn, you know, you're one of my top seven. So I, I had to uh, have this time with you and, you know, we're, we're tight today. So um, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. I'll tell you guys at the end, if there's time, how I met Glenn. And if not, I'll type it. So, Glenn, I know during all your years on this earth, you had time in the military. Tell me about what took you to the military and um, what branch you served and how your stint was in the military. Ah, uh, Well, um, coming from uh, a small town in Missouri, uh, I had to get out of there. And so uh, one of the major catalysts besides the racism was my father. He was, uh, he was a very loving man, but he was a man of very few words. And when I was 14 years old, he was walking past my room and he said, you know, son, I love you, but you got to go. And um, like I said, he was a man of few words. So I was making sure that I was all, I had some place to go, <laughs> you know, by the time I graduated. Um, what, what also another factor, how I ended up in the military was being back in Missouri, you know, uh, I went to an all white school and uh, the few blacks that were there, we were the top athletes. And we would also, one of the problems was that as an athlete, uh, when it came to, to scholarships and, and promoting uh, kids, they did not want to promote us with the colleges because we were taking away positions from other white kids. Oh, wow. Uh, yes. So I was making sure that nobody had control over my life. And that's how I ended up in the United States Navy. In the Navy. I won't hold the Navy against you, seeing I'm an Army girl. Um, so one of the main reasons I did want to interview you, um, just to, to change subjects from the things I normally speak of, is uh, the racism part. Because, you know, I, I'm ex-military as well, and my father was ex-military, and I have never in my 53 years um, been subject to any kind of racism, not outwardly. You know, maybe people said things behind my back, but I grew up with friends of all races. I had German friends. I had Asian friends. I had Caucasian friends. I had black friends. I just had friends. And it was no big deal for me to go stay the night at my white friend's house or my Asian friend or my German friend to stay the night at my, it was no big deal. And in my family, on my mom's side, if you came to one of our family reunions, you'd never know what race it is. There's so many Caucasians, there's Dutch people, there's German people, there's Mexican people, there's Black people, there's mixed people. And it just looks like a, a smorgasbord of race. 
but I know you didn't have it like that. So um, besides the military and you, well, your school, you facing some racism. Um, just tell me about, give me a couple of, of circumstances or situations where you had to deal with racism. Well, uh, gosh, racism started my first experience. Now, that's going to sound crazy, but I had never met, until I was four years old, I had never seen a white person. Oh, my so, gosh. So then we, we moved to Kansas City, and my uncle, oh, we were staying with my uncle, and he had a white neighbor, and his kid was waving at me and, and summoning me over. So I went over the fence to see this white kid. And, you know, I'm four years old. Next thing I know, I'm touching the fence and this kid starts smacking my hands with a stick. What? Yes. And I was shocked. But at the same time, I wouldn't let go of the fence. It was like, and my mother comes running over screaming and all the rest of to, to try to solve it. But that was my first experience. How old was the kid about? Oh, he was probably about, he was probably about eight years old. He was, oh, he was, wow. he was, yeah, he was considerably larger. Yes. And, um, also when my, uh, when we moved from the inner city after Dr. Martin Luther King got killed, we moved to the suburbs. My sister and I are playing in the snow and uh, a group of white boys are, are crashing sleds into each other and they decided they want to crash into me and my sister. So we get to the bottom of the hill, you know, it's time, it's getting ready to be on. And I just told my sister to run and get help. Oh, wow. And uh, because back in the day, that's what they were used to doing. You know what I'm saying? And they were doing it with impunity. And this is what people were teaching their kids. So I, I know I, I, this, this hate that I could never understand, I've had to accept that it exists. And I've had, it's, it's changed my life and how I deal with people because, you know, you go from being loving and accepting, though I am at heart, but at the same time, I've had to turn into this, this, this beast that, you know, will choke you out, you know, at the drop of a hat. He is a beast, you guys. I, I do want to throw that in there. He is, Glenn is not a small guy by any means. He's, he's big and I don't mean fat. I mean, he's, he's cock dieseled out, you know, all muscular and he's tall on top of that. And, and he is serious about life. So I feel sorry for anybody who just wants to take that. Um, that's something him and my oldest brother have in common. Just big for no reason. And um, and they, they're serious about their lives and the lives of people who are around them. So, Glenn, I know even with that, as a kid, it didn't end there for you. Because then you grew up, you went in the military, and then you became... Did, was your next move being a police officer? Yes. The next and then you faced the... racism there, right? Yes. Oh, my yes. gosh. You know, and, and it's funny. The, the, the military is a, you know, being, being on a submarine, everybody's lives are in each other's hands. And so whatever pettiness, you know, or 
idiosyncrasies you have, you have to set that aside in order to survive. That's right. But it's not like that out here in ComCiv Pack is what we used to call it, be, or being a civilian. So I get to uh, the police department. I'm on an all-white police department, except for uh, the seven of us that were black. There were eleven Hispanic uh, males. Uh, there was one seven Asian, and uh, there were twenty-three female whites, and uh, over a hundred male whites. Oh my gosh! And we had to deal with the issues of us black officers. They would put us all separated on shifts where no two blacks could work together. And if we ever saw each other in court, they would all stop and look at us until we disbanded. <laughs> so I here's mean, here's here's something I, I want to touch on just real quick. Okay. Um, I've never had a problem with a police officer at all, but I do notice, you know, um, when I watch the news, it's always when white officers kill a black man mostly, but there have been some black women as well. Yes, um, there's always the question, why are black officers standing around watching? Why aren't they doing anything? Why aren't they speaking up? Is there really like a band of brothers, even though you guys are also being racially discriminated against? Is there a band of brothers where you still have to protect this cop doing wrong? Well, I'll, I'll say it like this. For every race of people or every gender of people that have been subjugated or abused, there's always been members of their communities who have collaborated with their oppressors. Mm. And uh, as far as law enforcement is concerned, you know, there are some Black cops that try to play like everybody else, we're just blue. But at the end of the day, they're just another nigger with a gun when they get off duty. And what a lot of people don't realize was back in the 80s, the uh, number one killer of law enforcement officers in Los, black law enforcement in Los Angeles was white law enforcement officers. Mm. Because when you get off duty, you're just another nigga with a gun. That's the reality. And, and, and the term that they used to use was for us was second class badge. So at this, uh, at this, the city that I worked for at that time was city of Santa Monica. And a lot of people think that it's Santa Monica, California is a very liberal city. It is not. And uh, like I said, we would have running nigger targets on our, our lockers. Um, I had a gentleman I had a, uh, that I arrested. Well, what happened was there was a uh, an, uh, an assault victim. Guy with, and, a, and a white officer was screaming for a code nine. We go, we set up a perimeter. I see the gentleman up under a vehicle. It's a male black. I see him. He sees me. I called in everyone. We were just going to go in, I thought, to arrest him. And next thing I know, I see the guy that I had been riding with all night screaming at him, freeze, you MF, you know, I'm going to kill you. Well, all night in the car, he had, he'd been talking about shooting somebody because he just got a new gun and he wanted to see how it worked. 
shooting somebody so because he, he got a new this, gun? Yes. Because he got a new gun. Yes. So when he started screaming at this guy, I'm like, oh, my God, he's getting ready to kill him. And the guy looks at me and I'm looking at him. And the brother just takes off running. And I just stay down behind the car because I didn't want to see him get shot. Well, after a few seconds and no shots are ringing, I come from behind the vehicle. I take off running. We ran probably about a quarter of a mile. We outran the perimeter. I end up catching him, handcuffing him. And we started laughing because we're two brothers. We, I mean, it was a track meet. So finally, the supervisor and the other officers show up at the scene. We're both sitting on the ground. He's got his hands handcuffed behind his back and they turn the canine loose. <gasps> so now I've got a German shepherd running at two brothers on the ground and I'm not trying to get bit. So I rolled out of the way. And next thing I know, this dog jumps into this guy's stomach and he's on the ground screaming and he's kicking and, you know, trying to get away from the dog. And I'm like, what in the hell are y'all doing? And then they run up on me, you know, pat me on the back way. If they if they make you chase them, you got to kick them. And they were started stomping this guy. Oh, my gosh. My supervisor is sitting there watching this like this is, you know. This is this is part for the course. Well, once they found out that uh, uh, I was not down for that, uh, I started having problems at the police department. And uh, I ended up leaving there and going to an all black police department. And I uh, myself, a brother named Don Jackson and Henry McCray ended up starting this organization called Law Enforcement Officers for Justice. And we were investigating officer-involved shootings. We were teaching people in the community how to file complaints against officers. And um, you know, it—if you—if you look up Don Jackson, you'll see a video where Long Beach PD uh, uh, puts his head through a plate glass window. That—that's us. That you know, that's the organization. And uh, we uh, ended up getting rid of four uh, police chiefs from different cities because of the stuff that they were allowing uh, these white officers to do to black citizens. I'm so dumbfounded right now. I, I forgot we're interviewing. Um, I have, you know, coming from first person, I see this stuff on the news, you know, it it, it is foreign to me. It's it's foreign to me. I'm, I'm really kumbaya. Um, Everybody loves everybody, you know, and I see the racism on TV and I'm like, wow, this is, you know, it's sad. A lot of these things have made me, reduce me to tears, but I keep thinking people really can't be that bad. There can't be that many bad people out there. And, and I even think sometimes, well, you know, how many other races get killed by police? You know, how many... You, there was uh, something on the news maybe four or five months ago saying that they don't sensationalize white people getting killed by white cops, but white people get killed by white cops at a higher rate and percentage than black people. And I was going to look into that, never did, never looked no, into it, but... That, that but that's true but you have to you have to take that into context that's like <laughs> you know how you always hear you always hear people talk about 
black on black crime, right? Right. Well, you got to realize you are only have access to what you're exposed to. Mm. White people kill white people at a higher rate because they have access to white people. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? Blacks kill blacks because we have access to blacks. But what you don't have is the extraditional uh, uh, extraditional killing of people of of white people uh, by white officers. But what that's what you have with uh, white on black. That's the difference. Very well put. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, man, anything else you want to share about any of this before I move to the next subject? Uh, no, I it it, it, it hurts my heart. <laughs> yeah, that that I, was that was something else for me, and that's something I didn't know. I know a lot about you, but I didn't know any of that. So I was just sitting here with my mouth open and catching flies. So, man, don't catch no flies, Barry. <laughs> okay, I, I wanted to move on to your experience working in television because. Um, you were not working in television when I met you. However, you were able to get me as my manager on television quite often. Um, as a matter of fact, before I moved, you, um, Dr. Phil show had reached out to me. Um, even Steve Harvey, I, I just found this email the other day. Steve Harvey show had reached out to me. I didn't want to do either one of those shows. Now I kick myself. Um, <laughs> Oprah show Lost and Found reached out to me, which I was going to do. But then they went off the air the season before I was supposed to be on the show. And of course, I was on, you know, Fox, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. You took yeah. care of all that. So yeah. um, minus me. Tell me about your um, career working with television, and I hope something went well. Well, um, all while I was uh, working in law enforcement, I was writing and producing shows for public access. You know, this was kind of my my stress release. And um, after uh, I retired uh, from the Compton Police Department, I uh, was... Uh, I ended up going to Inside Edition American Journal. Worked there, met a lot of great people, worked with uh, Geraldo's brother, uh, Craig Rivera, Chip White, who's Vanna White's brother. Uh, it, was a, it was a great crew. It was a, a fantastic crew. And while I was there, I uh, uh, was told I, I had to, the Lord told me I had to go and start a production company back in Missouri. So eventually I capitulate. I come back to Missouri and I was working for a couple of, uh, uh, what was that? Uh, I worked for a Christian radio uh, television station. And then I end up working for Fox News. Hmm. So here I am, Kansas City at Fox News. And everybody, people don't understand that everybody gets the same information that comes over the uh, Associated Press wire. But then we were having people who wanted to put their own slant on it. And at that time, uh, 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 I was always getting into fights in the newsroom about the crap that they were trying, that they're trying to uh, peddle. 
So I would read the scripts and I would tell them, you guys can't say this on air. And everybody wanted to fight. I said, fine, let me go find a $200,000 mouthpiece who's going to have to read this. Fortunately, at that time, it was a black person. And uh, she said, oh, hell no, I'm not reading this. And that was the battle that I had working at Fox. That was only and, at Fox, though, not inside edition or. No, not. No, no. This was okay. only at this is only at Fox. And if people I, I can finally tell people that this country and, and the mindset that, that the people have, they don't understand it's it's been run by a billionaire, Ozzy, who was he all he cares about is money. Hmm. And uh, we see now how it's all played out with uh, uh, Donald Duck and uh, the Dominion lawsuit. And Rupert Murdoch, hey, he's you know he's he's he's, he's gonna he's gonna lose big on this one. But that's a whole nother subject. But no, I um, I um, ended up leaving there because I got hired by a church in Leewood, Kansas, to start a production company. Which was the reason that God told me to go back to Missouri in the first place. Right. And so started a production company. You know, everything went great. And then um, my father-in-law came down with ALS. And um, I had started my own production company also on the side. I left the church. I had to go to Colorado to take care of my father-in-law um, with his uh bout of a Lou Gehrig's disease until he died and uh, you know basically um, when you and I uh, ended up hooking up I was no longer doing uh, uh, film and, 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 and television production that's I was I was doing security then because right. it's funny how um, well you know how I look yeah <laughs> One of one of the problems that I have with people, you know, is if if you de, you know if I asked you to describe me, if the first things you said were big and black, you don't see me. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? And so I've all that's all when you've always had people viewing you like that. People will pay me crazy amounts of money to hurt people. To train people, I'm talking about private security and things like that. I've worked for, I've, I've, I've worked for countless people. I've, I don't even want to tell you who I've worked for, but <laughs> you, you know. But for me to be able to go to a place and say, you know what, I just want to write, I just want to edit, I want to, you know, I want to produce stuff, you know, they, you know, that, you know. But they want you to fit in their bubble, you know, in the parameters that they see you. And unfortunately, that's where I was when we met. Okay. Well, it was my blessing because uh, now I can tell you guys, because I see I have a few minutes here. Um, when I met Glenn, uh, a friend had talked me into going out. And I like going out to dance sometimes, you know, but I was one of those people that I'm only going to dance and I'm only dancing on the fast songs and 
Don't ask me to slow dance. I don't know you like that. So I was watching her dance and I was sitting on like the top tier at this club. Guys were asking me to dance. It was slow music. So I was saying, no, thank you. No, thank you. And I happened to notice Glenn. And um, I noticed women walking up to Glenn to talk to him. And he would always like push him at a hands, you know, arms length away from him. And he would put his hands behind his back and put his head down so he could hear them uh, because he's tall. How tall are you, Glenn? About six, two, six, two. OK, so he would put his head down, you know, his ear towards their mouth so he could hear them, but never let them, you know, close enough to be under him, which was weird because the club I was in, all the other bouncers were on the dance floor and they were drinking. So finally I got up, you know, I, I needed entertainment. So I went over there to talk to him and I told him I was watching you. And I noticed um, that every time a female came over here to talk to you, you know, you would like put your arm out to keep him away. I was like, what are you doing? And he laughed at me and he was like, you know, I'm here to work. You know, I'm not here to pick up anybody. I'm, I'm here to work. I was like, yeah, but all the other guys are on the floor. And I think he called them idiots, but he was just like, that's what they do. That's what they do. They drink, they have a good time. But if something breaks out, you know, somebody's got to be responsible. And I was impressed by that. And so um, I don't know, somewhere in the conversation, I did let him know I was an author. And um, I, I must have found out that he used to be on TV or something. I was like, you know, I'm looking for a manager. And he he laughed at me. I'll never forget that. And I was like, well, I'm going to get you my book. And the next day I sent him my book. Or did I give you a copy? You gave me a copy. Yes. Did, okay. I must have gave you a copy that night. Maybe yes. I had them in my yes. car. Yes. You okay. had a copy in your car. Yes. He actually read it and called me within 24 hours and said, okay, I'm going to manage you. And manage me, he did. Oh, my gosh. I've been on over over 30 radio shows, including, who was that lady who got mad and hung up on me at the end? Mother Love. Was that Mother Jones? Or that or was Mother Love, yeah. Mother Love. Mother yeah, Love, she, yeah, Mother Love. Show. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I was like two minutes late because I couldn't find a landline and it had to be a landline. And um, I, I went to the church to call her and none of the landlines were working and the pastor couldn't get them to work to call outside of the the area. And when we finally got one that worked, I was two minutes late and she was heated. So um, at the very end, when she dismissed the call, she hung up on me. But I've been, you know, on, on the radio in England. I've been on TV. Like I said, I think the most, even though it didn't happen, the 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 thing that made me feel better than anything else was when... You finally got John Singleton to be interested in talking to you about a movie for my book. And then he had to mess up and pass away on us. Hey, he, I, yeah, I <laughs> yeah, we we lost Mr. Singleton and I was like, wow. But that just let me know, you know, there was a lot of promise. And then we went our separate ways and you weren't my manager anymore. But you know how you said earlier God told you to go um, and do the production company and or or what he was telling you to do? Yes. I need you to go talk to him because I'm almost positive he's telling you to manage me again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost wait, positive. Wait, wait, wait. He came and woke me up the other night, told me what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh girl you know my you know i you know i do anything for you my girl you're my yeah, girl yeah i i i promise you guys if you look at glenn he's a very nice looking guy he's got his head on his shoulders he's extremely intelligent um he he's he's just the but i've never seen glenn as nothing more than my brother and my friend you know, even that night in the club, I was more intrigued, like, what in the world's going on? You know, he's the only person here actually working. So that intrigued me. But he is the gentleman he portrayed himself to be. Um, became friends with my husband instantly. My husband fell in love with him instantly, which who wouldn't? Um, but Glenn, this was probably the most interesting podcast I've done. Well, for me. Um... I I I I am flattered. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. It's, it's just my life. <laughs> well, I know a lot about your life, and there were so many things I do want to tell the listeners. I told Glenn we could talk about anything he wanted to talk about because he's got so many interesting things in his life, and there were some subjects I wanted to stay away from, and there were some he wanted to stay away from, but. For the most part, I could probably do a five-hour podcast with Glenn, and he could probably go from one thing to another to another, and it would all be intriguing. Just a very interesting life. Um, even if he, the, some of the people he didn't mention before, if he mentioned a couple of those names, just to talk about the work he's had to do. And yeah, he's had a, a very, I'm telling you, you should write a few books about your your life. I'm still writing. I am still writing. Yeah, those would be bestsellers. In fact, the one that I'm, you know, I'm working on, it I call it Letters to My Children, and it's just mm. basically about life. You know, my life because, you know, kids really don't understand their parents. They see them as mom and dad, and it takes a long time for people to see their parents as human beings, and so mm. that's. I'm writing this book to my kids. And he has three phenomenal kids. He really does. One fallen in his footsteps, but he's got three amazing juniors. They all look like him. Um, and one just happens to be a, a beautiful girl, but she still looks just like her daddy to me. So, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You left one out. I've got four. I've got three sons and one daughter. Wait, who am I missing? You got Glenn, you got uh, Grant, you have Garrison, and then there's Garrison. Uh, yes. Garrison. Yes. Garrison, Garrison. He's got three yes. G's. That's and right. What? He's getting ready to graduate with his master's degree in education here in next month. So well, so does Keaton with his second master's in May. But we'll talk okay. about that later. Yeah. We'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, my friend, do you have any final words for the listeners? We got we got two minutes left. We did well. Two minutes left. Well, I will say this. All the things that have happened in my life, I would say a good 80% of the things that, that transpired were for the benefit of other people. Mm. And so one thing that I have, I've, I've come to realize that our lives are not our own. And and if we if we really pay attention, think about us in society, we're black people trying to get ahead. If it wasn't for us 
a lot of times reaching out. You, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, think about it. If uh, how regular society works, it's based on nepotism. It's based on you know who you know, you know. But Absolutely. For those of us without access, you know, it is incumbent upon us to do and to strive and to 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 uh, get to the place where we're in those positions where we can reach out and take care of one another. You know, if when I rise, you rise. And that is, that is, you know, that is just something that I want, you know, especially black people to understand. We, I do the best for myself, but it's not just for myself. Um, that, that'll have to probably be another podcast, Glenn, in, in a couple of weeks, because I just want to say really, really quickly, what I noticed was when my books came out and everything, um, especially when you started getting me on those shows, that a lot of my brothers and sisters became real phony with me. But my friends of other races, they lifted me like crazy. And it just seems that there seems to be a whole bunch of jealousy within our own um, our own race or, you know, envy or something. Now, not everybody, because I've got some really good friends, but yeah, uh-huh. yeah I, it's just different with us. Yes, we still suffer from the, the divide and conquer of slavery. We still really do. And me personally... I am the third generation out of slavery in my family. So if you if you understand that, you understand that this issue is very recent. And that's why 